This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Ashley. And I'm Lacey, and this is United States of Murder. This week, we're in North Dakota discussing a Halloween murder mystery. Then, we'll talk about a case involving battered women syndrome. Buckle up and join us on this dark and twisted ride through the Peace Garden State. A crying clown, a confrontational cowboy, and a helpful hockey player are in a bar. This sounds like the setup of a bad joke, but it's actually a Halloween party, and these costumed men, along with many others, are all in the same place. Halloween is a night when rules don't seem to apply and anyone can become someone else. As strange as it seems, costumes actually help you blend into the crowd. If you're not in costume, you're the odd one out. However, it's much easier to remember a costume than a name, so you may not be as inconspicuous as you think, especially if you're covered in blood. Joel Lovelian was 38 years old in October of 2007. Joel was born on October 8, 1969 in Bismarck, North Dakota, and ended up graduating from the University of North Dakota with a degree in math and computer science. He ended up living in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and worked in information services at the Grand Forks Clinic and later as a technical systems analyst for All True Health System. He enjoyed golf and bowling. And he had a big friend circle that he liked to spend a lot of time with. Like a lot of people up north, he was an avid hockey fan. We have that down here, but I feel like people in colder states, they're all about hockey. It's their... We have hockey here? Not in Arkansas, but like... You uh, mean in the southern states? Yeah, like Tennessee, North Carolina. Oh, yeah, they have the Predators. Yeah, 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 the Predators. I've been to some of those games. Those are fun. I've been to a Carolina... Hockey's fun. Hockey's a lot of fun. They will beat each other up until they're toothless. And it's super hot. (laughs) So Fight me. (laughs) (laughs) I will not disagree. His team of choice was the Fighting Sioux, but since then they've changed their name to the Fighting Hawks. He married Heidi Hosley in 1992, and together they had a daughter named Alexa. However, he and Heidi did not stay married. But he did find the love of his life later when he met a woman named Heather Eastling. She was an elementary school teacher. She lived in Texas. They dated a long distance for a while. But when things got serious, she moved up to be with him. They got engaged 10 months after they met. And they set the date for August 9th of 2008. So that's a pretty modest engagement. Almost a year. Well, I feel like also, who made the rules? There's no rules. I feel like people are like, oh, that's not very long to be engaged. Says who? Yeah. Says who? Nobody. Nobody. Nobody can tell you what your heart feels. Yeah. Joel Lovelian took his fiance Heather to a Halloween party at the Broken Drum Bar and Grill in Grand Forks, North Dakota. This was actually half bar, half casino. Fun fact... North Dakota has more bars per capita than any other state in the nation. We could never be there. No livers. So this party was the Saturday before Halloween. So that's when adults celebrate, is the weekend before Halloween, let's be honest. So Joel took his fiance Heather to a Halloween party at the Broken Drum Bar and Grill. 
This party was packed already. The bar full. Well, if it wasn't full already, about a group of 40 to 50, 20-somethings had a chartered bus for the night, and they were stopping at a lot of different bars in this area, and they ended up at the Broken Drum. How fun! Like a packed bus of 40 to 50, an already packed bar. This is... North Dakota's got a lot more going on than I guess. North Dakota is spring break 97. Right? I'm like, okay. This they, is a good time. They do Halloween, right? I We're mean, doing this is what I'm getting. I'm like, let's go to North Dakota for Halloween. So Joel was dressed up as a hockey player and was wearing a bright green jersey. Heather was dressed up as a mechanic. He had a cigar and played blackjack while the party bus was outside, ready to take his riders to the next bar. Around 11.30, Joel got a call on a cell phone and went outside to take it since it was so loud inside. So outside, you know, the party bus was ready to leave, go to the next stop. But after his call, he went back inside and told Heather that someone got left behind by the bus and that he was going to go back outside to check on him. He didn't really elaborate on that. He just kissed her and went back outside. Just a few minutes later, someone ran inside yelling, call 911. To Heather's shock, it was Joel who needed help. She ran outside and found him lying on the pavement, beaten up. He was bloody, and blood was all over the concrete by his head. He was not responding, and he was rushed to the ER and the same hospital where he worked. He ended up dying as a result of his wounds. This tells you anything, he had been beaten so badly that the bones in his face had broken. More than just the nose, yeah. Mm-mm. This is what really got me. His cause of death, he choked to death on his own blood. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. It's almost like if he, I don't know, I'm just speculating. If, just if someone turned flipped him over. him over or if he was beat up on his side. Yeah, <sighs> choked to death on his own blood. And he was just going outside to check on some guy. This happened in minutes. Minutes. Horrific. Not a part of it. So back at the Broken Drum Bar, the police were searching for possible witnesses and suspects. Unfortunately, the party bus had left. But there were still around 80 people at this bar. So think about 80 people and then 40 to 50 people just left. This was a lot of people. Yeah. Police started talking to everyone they knew. Almost everyone was, of course, in a costume. But that's how people were able to identify others. It was actually easier than if right. it's like some guy in a white shirt. It was like, this oh, was exactly, Superman. Exactly. So bar patrons said a lion, hunter, clown, cowboy, gangster, and a construction worker had been seen around Joel. However, they were nowhere to be found. And at the murder scene, they found what looked like what looked like a piece of a costume with a spot of blood on it. It looked like a foot or a paw. Maybe from a lion, they couldn't really tell. Police started searching nearby bars, and soon they found the clown, who ended up being a 22-year-old farmer. So these were really a lot of young guys. He was crying, and his hands were shaking, which was kind of an odd look after all this took place. Mm -hmm. But allegedly, he was crying because he just had a fight with his girlfriend. The police took him back to the police station, and once he got there, he demanded a lawyer. Which some found odd, but I'm like, I would, I would do the same thing. If I started thinking, what are they coming at me for? I would do the same thing. So they also found the cowboy, 
and when they found him, he gave them a fake name and a fake birthday and then became physically aggressive. Also not great. Mm-mm. But you have to remember, these guys are all drunk. Mm-hmm. I mean, crying when you're drunk is not that unusual. Girl, Fighting, no. all these things. So they cuffed the cowboy but didn't arrest him. They questioned him. And this is weird. The cowboy asked them if the victim was wearing a green shirt with the initials U and D on it. That's exactly what Joel was wearing. Both he and the clown were drunk, so they couldn't really get much useful information out of them. So they said, okay, come back the next day. Sober up. Sober up for more questions. Well, police felt like they really did not have anything to do with the attack. They felt like whatever they were saying was genuine. Mm Mm-hmm. They said that two of the other passengers got into a fight outside the bar and that one of them was a friend of theirs who was dressed up as a hunter. The other guy that he got into a fight with, not their friend, was in a lion costume and a yellow hoodie was part of the attire. So maybe this was the lion paw that got left behind. They said that after the fight, the lion guy was not allowed back on the bus. And before this, they saw the lion talking to the man in the hockey costume. So this sounds like the guy that Joel told Heather he was going to check on outside because the bus left him. Lines up. Well, two days later, a man named Travis Stay walked into police headquarters. Travis was the lion. He was a 23-year-old nursing student and said that he had heard that they were wanting to talk to a man dressed up as a lion at the bar on Halloween. His face was bruised, cut up, he had cuts on his hand, and he said that a man dressed up as a hunter punched him in the parking lot. So it was just like a, just a bunch of people were fighting. Yeah. So the lion, Travis, and this hunter were fighting outside of a bar, and we never get the why. Why were they fighting? Right. We don't ever know. So then Joel comes out to kind of check and see what's going on. The hunter was supposed to be on this party bus, and the friends say he was. So the party bus left. A court. So Joel went back in and said, hey, this guy got left behind on a party bus. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go check back in, go back out and check on him. That's it. So based on what we're gathering from Joel, there's just one guy who he's concerned about. Travis was wearing the yellow lion costume made out of a hoodie, but he told the police that he threw it in the trash because it was bloody. He told them where he tossed it and that they could recover it if they wanted to without a warrant or a lawyer present because he was innocent. He was super drunk that night, and he said that he did not remember anything that happened. He didn't remember talking to Joel, but he did not believe he had hurt anyone. And this is kind of strange since there's, let's see, 80 plus 40 to 50 other people Mm -hmm. there. No one witnessed this fight. No one witnessed what happened to Joel, period. Nobody. That's weird. And if someone did, they didn't talk about it. That is weird. So some did see, though, the fight that the lion had with the hunter. So when the DNA results came back on Travis's Halloween costume, some of the blood on the hoodie and pants matched Joel's blood. So he had to have had been in proximity to Joel. So this was enough to arrest and charge Travis Day with murder. Prosecutors offered him a deal that he would serve less than 10 years in prison if he pleaded guilty to manslaughter, but he refused right from the get-go. He said, no, I'm innocent. I'm not taking any plea deal. 
At the trial, prosecutors painted Travis as an angry man who had just lost a fight, like with the hunter, and he attacked the Good Samaritan who tried to help him. They were trying to think of what a motive could be. Not that you don't have to have a motive to convict in North Dakota, but they wanted it to make sense to the jury. And they had witnesses who testified that they saw him talking to Joel that night. And another man said that he had tried to punch him later that night on his way home. So a complete stranger came forward and said, Travis tried to beat me up and I don't even know him. He was the instigator. Yeah, like he had an issue that night. The taxi driver who picked up Travis that night also testified, which didn't do him any favors. The taxi driver said that when Travis got into the cab, just after 1 a.m., he was bloody and his hands were shaking. He said, quote, I looked up at his face and he was a blood-covered hairline to neck and covering the whole front of his face kind of like it was a mask. Also, he wasn't picked up from the Broken Drum Bar. He was picked up by the cemetery at Columbia Road and Gateway Drive, which was almost a mile away. So he likely walked about a mile away from the bar before he called a cab. He, The cab driver asked Travis multiple times where he wanted to go before he finally got a response. Like, Travis was in a daze or something. Travis rode in the front seat, which I thought was odd to ride in the front seat of a cab. I don't even do that in an Uber unless no. it's packed. Right. But Travis just stared at the at the dashboard the entire ride. And the taxi driver noticed that one of the lion paws from his costume was bloodied and dangling. The other one was missing. So he asked, tough night too? Travis did not say a word. Later that night, he asked if he wanted to get the cut under his eye taken care of. And Travis just looked confused. Like, what are you talking about? He flipped down the mirror in the car and looked in it like he was just realizing for the first time that his face was messed up. Well, the driver dropped him off at his home. He said that Travis smelled of alcohol but didn't seem drunk, which is just an opinion. It doesn't mean he wasn't. So the defense argued that Travis, who was five foot nine and 160 pounds, was too intoxicated to harm anyone, let alone Joel, who was six foot four and weighed 240 pounds. So there was a big difference in body types. To be an ad- a devil's advocate here, if someone's super drunk and they're angry, they can do a lot more than they're normally capable of. Yeah. Anything's possible, yeah. in my opinion. The defense argued that it was a group of men who did this, but that it wasn't Travis. So the defense also supplied a report from a blood spatter expert who said, Joel's blood could have ended up on Travis in several different ways. And an ER doctor said the cuts on Travis's hands were not severe enough to have come from beating a man to death. Which maybe you couldn't prove that from the hands, but what about the feet? The kid, right. You know, right. but they didn't say anything about that. That's just what I was thinking. So there was a surveillance tape from the broken drum. Maybe that could help. On the tape, three and a half minutes after Joel leaves the bar for the last time, the man in the clown costume can be seen exiting the bar. So this is important because it means the party bus had not departed yet because everyone agreed the clown had left the broken drum on the bus. So they're all saying, oh, the bus was gone before Joel died, but this proves that's not true. So if the bus was still outside, Joel, Travis, and some of the costume partiers from the bus could have been together in the parking lot for at least three and a half minutes. But after a nine-day trial, it took jurors five hours to acquit Travis stayed. 
Detective Mike Scholes, now retired, said he still believes the evidence against Travis Stay is strong. There's not one stitch of physical evidence to suggest anyone else was involved, he said. The Grand Forks Police Department considers the case closed, and prosecutors have allowed evidence to be destroyed, which blows my mind, especially since this was in 2007. His fiancée, Heather, was of course devastated by this. She said, quote, If he's really not guilty, then who is? Somebody knows something. Travis Day offered a public apology to Joel's family, saying he's sorry for drinking too much and for being part of the equation that night, but that he didn't kill Joel. Joel was his only friend in the parking lot that night. My sources were NBC News. There's a good Dateline episode on this. Joel Lovelyan's obituary and the Grand Forks Herald, but yeah. Case closed, but he's been acquitted, but they are destroying evidence, so it's likely no one will ever be charged for this. That's insane. Especially if they're destroying evidence. It's like, you want to get away with murder? Do it on Halloween, dressed up in a costume. And I think it was Dateline that where the mother and father even were kind of like, they kind of have different opinions. The mom thought at the time... Travis was guilty, but the father was still like, how did this drunk small man do this by himself? Right. So even the family had questions. Like, who did this? And I'll post pictures of Travis's injuries after the night. He has a big gash under his eye and bruised up. But he did say the hunter punched him. I hate this. How are that many people at a bar and not a single person saw how this guy got hurt? I just don't believe it. Yeah. Someone did, but they didn't want to well, be and they in the spotlight. Well, I mean, it, it's kind of one of those things where, where we've been out and been drinking and seen somebody arguing and just like walk by them. But if something happened and them come back and say, do you remember who you saw arguing? No. Yeah. Just two people. Well, I don't know. People are punching each other. You don't think someone's going to die necessarily, you know, from that. I almost never. If I see a drunken fist fight, I don't think... It's going to end in death. No. So a witness might not believe it, but still no one came forward and said, yeah, we saw someone punching Joel. Not a single person said they saw this. Yet he Very bizarre. was bloodied up, blood all over the cement. It's just something is so strange about it. I don't know. It was hard to watch the Dateline episode because his fiance's on there. It's just, well, it's your case about demons. <sighs> I wish. I wish your case was about to <laughs> Let's take a break and then we'll crack into it. We're let's, back. Let's crack into your case now. A battered woman is defined as a woman who has been physically or sexually assaulted by her husband, partner, or former partner. Typically, verbal abuse precedes physical violence. An escalating pattern of intimidation and injury can even result in death. This often leads to them developing battered women's syndrome. Battered women's syndrome is characterized by a cycle of violence, which has three phases. Number one, tensions build. Like Mm -hmm. it's going to lead up to something. Number two, the battering incident happens. And number three, the honeymoon phase where they apologize profusely and I'm going to get help. It'll never happen again. I was just mad. All the excuses. Battered women usually exhibit four characteristics. They believe that the violence is their fault. They can't place the blame for the violence on anyone else. 
They fear for their lives and the lives of their children, and they believe their abuser is everywhere and sees everything. Sad. To them, there is no escape. We also need to point out and recognize that the criminal justice system does not or does very, very little to protect these women from abuse. Badder women may not be able to obtain a restraining order or keep it in effect. The women may not be able to obtain temporary financial support should she choose to leave. And the court usually allows the abuser visitation with the children. Mm -hmm. So they're still holding it over their heads. And a... uh restraining order at the end of the day it's a piece of paper it's a piece of paper you still have to call that it's a whole process it doesn't actually really there's no armed guard at your door keeping them from it's it's yeah mm. no sometimes these women use physical force to kill their abusers these women may be charged with murder or manslaughter and they don't deny the fact that they did kill but instead they say this was self-defense They may have blacked out or have no memory of actually committing the crime because they just fucking lost it. They've they've had enough. Their battered woman defense has been used by many women who argue that their only means of escaping life-threatening abuse is to kill their abuser. These justifying circumstances can acquit the accused woman. There are two factors that must be proven in order for the defendant to be successful when using this defense. Number one, they must prove they believe they were in imminent danger of unlawful bodily harm. And second, they must have used a reasonable amount of force to respond to the threatened danger. Typically, there are four traditional requirements. The two forementioned and the defendant could not have been the aggressor. So like they didn't start the fight. Mm. And that the defendant had no way to safely retreat. So they're backed into a corner, essentially. And their only way is like fight or flight. Yeah. Often these criteria are not met. Like the case I'm going to tell you about today, this battered woman didn't kill during a confrontation, but rather when there was no imminent danger to an outside observer. And the batterer was actually unarmed and asleep. This often happens after years and years of abuse. The battered woman syndrome expands the concept of legal self-defense. The legal system does not consider someone who kills in self-defense morally culpable, considering the act was correct under the circumstances at the time. The law of the state where the murder takes place obviously defines the legal standard for the claim And this has been used in court since the late 1970s. Some cases can claim insanity. This is legally described as more of a self-defense of excuse rather than a self-defense of justification. Basically, she's saying that she did commit the crime, but she's not responsible for it. Mm -hmm. But this requires them to have severe mental illness at the time of the crime. So I'm going to read you an excerpt out of the Duke Journal of Comparative and International Law by Sharon Bird. Judith had been denied food, beaten, kicked, and prostituted by her captor. He had crushed glass in her face, extinguished cigarettes on her body, and poured boiling water over her. She tried to escape several times, only to be caught and dragged back and brutally beaten. Her captor threatened to kill her and the situation worsened by the day. 
Finally, she had the opportunity to take a gun and conceal it. She waits until her captor is caught off guard and shoots him in the back, ending his reign of terror over her. If this were a description of those prisoners of war under Nazis during World War II, or even the Korean War, there would no doubt be that Judith was justified in killing her captor. Would it matter that he was sleeping? Would anyone judge her if she didn't wait until her captor was awake and resuming his acts of beating her? Would she need a psychiatric exam to determine if she was suffering from some syndrome caused by years of abuse? No, she wouldn't. This is not a description of a prisoner war at all. It's a description of a prisoner of marriage, that of Judy Norman, during the last 36 hours of her marriage. She killed her conjugal captor and was brought up on murder charges in the state of North Carolina. Her story ends like so many others like this. A mother, a housewife, serving years in prison after being sentenced for voluntary manslaughter of her abusive husband. But that's a story for another time in another state. Today, I'm going to talk to you about Janice Lydholm. So Janice was 42 and her husband Chester was 45 and they lived on a farm in Washburn, in Washburn, North Dakota, near the Missouri River. Other than the construction jobs at the power plant Chester takes from time to time, the couple made their living on the farm. In August of 1981, the couple had been married for 23 years and had five grown children. The two younger kids still lived at home. Sandra was 20 and lived in the house with her parents. And Neil was 21 and lived in a converted bus on the property. Although they had been married nearly 25 years, it was not a happy marriage. Chester was an alcoholic and physically abused Janice. Sometimes these beatings were so bad she was bruised for days. He had been known to choke her as well stopping only when she lost consciousness. She covered her marks with long sleeves, sunglasses, and all the excuses of falling down, falling down the stairs, tripping, bumping into things. When they were really, really bad, she would have to go to the hospital. But like most, after these horrible beatings, Chester would apologize profusely and promise to never do it again. Her adult children often tried to help her leave their father But anytime they tried to intervene, Chester would tell them to stay out of his marriage. She'd stay with one of them for a few days and come back. On one occasion, she went to her son's house in Chicago, but she always came back. For whatever reason, these seem to be the hardest ties for women to break. Mm -hmm. We see it. We read about it all the time. Janice talked to Chester's brother as well about the abuse to see if maybe he could talk to his brother, but it did not help. She also suggested marriage counseling to Chester, but he refused. Janice contacted the sheriff's office about getting into a shelter on several different occasions. It didn't work. And multiple times she had attempted to commit suicide. Jeez. All of this would come to a head on August 6th of 1981. Chester had spent the day running errands when he returned home around 430 and Janice could smell the alcohol on him. He was angry about a fight that they'd had before where he had been accusing Janice of cheating. Mm. 
always. Of course, just, that's of course, the way it yeah. is. So Chester and Janice attend a gun attend a gun club party in Washburn. She, you know, he gives her the silent treatment the whole way there. That was his favorite thing to do when he's mad at her. Mm-hmm. I hate that shit. Yeah. I dated a guy who would give me the silent treatment. And it's just like the biggest mind fuck. How like, do people even do that? You're just not going to speak to me. You're going to treat me like I'm not even acknowledgeable. I'll it's talk just, until mm-mm. there's a hole in the ground. Right. Like, don't, don't not talk to me. Mm-mm. So anyways, they eat and drink and do all the stuff that gun clubs entail. <laughs> shoot? Do they shoot? I don't know. I don't know and then happened. they start to argue. Oh, Chester thinks she's paying attention to some random guy at the party oh, and gets God. mad. He sounds like the cheater. Yeah. Anytime a dude is Guilty super, dog barks first. Exactly. Yes. Gives me a red flag that he's he's no Always good. accusing. Mm-hmm. So Janice decides she wants to stay with her daughter in town, but Chester demands that she comes home with him. Ugh. One of their other daughters, Sandra, had actually went to the party with them. So she convinces Sandra to come home with him, with them, because she doesn't want to be alone. So they fight like hell the whole drive home. He tells her she was flirting with this random dude and throws the affair she supposedly had at her. She comes back at him and says, you're the one that had the affair. So it's back and forth at one point. He reaches across her and opens the door while they're going down the road and tries to shove her out. Their daughter is sitting in between them and keeps her mother from falling out. It's like jerking the door, holding on to her mom. Chester tells his wife, when we get home, leave if that's what you want to do. So they get home. It's like midnight. Sorry to interrupt. Was he abusive to the children? I didn't see anything where he was. It was just their mother. So they get home around midnight. Sandra takes all the keys out of the vehicle so her parents can't drive because they've been drinking. Her parents are still arguing. Chester's screaming. Janice is crying. He will shove her down. She gets up. He shoves her down again. It's just over and over again. He snatches her wedding rings off of her hand and tells her that she doesn't deserve to be married. Like, it's just a fucking disaster. So Chester's exhausted. And is like, let's go to bed. And Janice says, no. So he grabs her by her hair and drags her into the bedroom. He tells her he wants a divorce. They talk about it. She's going to move out the next day. Go stay with her daughter. He goes to the bedroom to get ready for bed. All the things. When she refuses, he drags her across the floor again by her hair and throws her on the bed. So Chester falls asleep just before 1 a.m. Janice is still awake. You're like, how could you sleep after all this shit? No, yeah, no. So she slips out of bed quietly and goes to the kitchen. Sandra had hidden most of the knives because they were fighting and she didn't know what was going to happen. But Janice manages to find a butcher knife. She grabs it and walks quietly back to the bedroom and stabs her sleeping husband twice on the right side of his chest. Chester gets out of bed, crawls to the living room, and is yelling for Sandra, his daughter, to go get Neil, their son, because their mother had stabbed him. Sandra helps him to the couch, runs to get her brother. When they get back, Chester is now on the floor bleeding, and the knife is beside him. They rush over, try to stop the bleeding, but it's no use. He bleeds out within minutes. It is 1.15. Janice is hysterical. 
She calls the deputy sheriff and tells him, you got to come out to the farm. Paramedics pronounce Chester dead at the scene. Janice tells him, I just couldn't take it anymore. She washes up and changes clothes before the police even arrive. This is 1981. Like there's, you know, there wasn't a lot of education on forensics and crime scene preservation. She didn't know not to do any of that stuff. There's no ID channel or forensic files. So police get there and arrest Janice and charge her with first degree murder. During the trial, testimonies paint a very unhappy marriage with alcohol abuse and violence. Janice says she acted in self-defense in response to years and years of abuse and the anticipation of future abuse. This case would end up going to the Supreme Court of North Dakota as a criminal law case, distinguishing the subjective and objective standard of reasonableness in a case where battered women use self-protection as a defense. The court instructed the jury that the defendant would escape liability only if a reasonable person believed herself to be in imminent danger. And like I told you before, battered women syndrome, you know, some of the characteristics are low self-esteem, mm-hmm. learned helplessness. Oh, yeah. She was found guilty of manslaughter by the jury and sentenced to five years in prison with three years suspended. Janice appealed the conviction and requested a new trial. The Supreme Court intervenes overturns the conviction on the grounds that the jury was instructed incorrectly on the laws of self-defense in a way that may have been prejudiced to Janice, and it kept the jury from considering battered women's syndrome. (sighs) So basically, just because she wasn't... He was, He didn't have a knife. You know, he didn't just punch her. He was asleep, so he wasn't posing a threat at the moment. To her, in her mind, at the moment, yeah, yeah, I, she knew when he woke up. Tomorrow was going to be the same thing. He's going to be the hell out of her. It's going to be. He's going to threaten to kill me. Cycle. It's an endless cycle. So I have the chance <sighs> to escape my quote unquote abuser captor. I'm going to take it because it's yeah. never going to end if I don't. Next time it may be he may kill me. Yeah. So that's my case. Did the children testify? I didn't see. That would be. Mainly the, mm. there was not a lot on this case, so I apologize if it was super short. Um, I couldn't find even a picture of Holy Janice. Cow, for real? It was just case file after case What's file. What's her last name again? Lied home. Oh my gosh. Where it was all the Supreme Court's documents yeah. of their account and all the things that happened and police reports of where when they got there, how they found everything and all that. But it just it's something that I've never really thought about, which is why I found it interesting and covered it is in in the court of law, what defines self-defense? Mm-hmm. He didn't have a gun pointed at her. He was asleep. Right. But it this reminds me of a case of a girl I went to high school with. What? Don't really want to say too much about it because I know people who were very close to people involved in it and stuff. Mm -hmm. This happened, I don't know, six or so years ago. But she murdered this guy. I'm not going to get specific about it because I don't. There's a lot of opinions in my hometown about this. Sure. I have the unpopular opinion, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
where it was like she claimed she was abused. Mm -hmm. And I know for a fact she would not shower at her own home with him because she thought he would rape her in the shower. Oh, my God. She showered at someone I know in real life and trust. She showered at their home instead of her own home with this guy. She ends up shooting him when he's not on surprise. He didn't know she was going to do it. But her defense was, he's been abusing me. My problem was, small town Arkansas, all these people do their little witness testimonies. I dated him in high school, and he was the nicest guy in the world. Oh, my gosh, he was my best friend. He would have never hurt a woman, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And then they had actual unbiased people testify like an accountant, a physician, where they're like, he was mean. He did mm-hmm. this, this, this. But like all these people I know from my hometown that knew him in real life were like, he was the greatest guy ever. He would have never. And it frustrates me because we both know you don't know someone. Well, no. Just because someone's no. fine in one relationship. Mm-hmm. When you don't know what goes on behind closed oh, doors. It frustrates me so much. You cannot say, oh, he would never hurt someone. I don't know what anyone's capable of you in don't. a romantic relationship. Well, I really or even, don't freaking know. Even in cases of child abuse where oh, they're like... 100%. No, they would shocked. never. And then you find out, oh, yes, they did. Exactly. You, or sexual abuse. Exactly. Oh, my God, they would never. Well, yeah, they would. People are capable of more than you think. And it just... In, in her case, she, I think, was convicted of second degree. Mm-hmm. Meaning, like, she didn't plan it, but she did knowingly... Right. Commit it, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. But she had a small sentence. People were really mad because they thought she should have gotten first degree. But it's kind of like this where she had been allegedly abused for a long time. She saw no way out. I'm not saying it's ever okay to kill someone. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's a sticky. I am not saying that. (laughs) Tell you that right now. Mess with my kid. If I were on a jury and I'm looking in where I'm like, man, this Janice was got the shit beat out of her every freaking day for 25 years or whatever. How do you say that she wasn't It wasn't self-defense. It seems like self-defense. It's just, it's hard. It's not a yes or no, I don't know. It's not it's, it's a gray, gray area. 100%. It's there's no black and white when it comes to I'm not these saying she that's the right thing to do, but it's I also see that she felt trapped and that she had no she had tried to get into a shelter. Mm-hmm. She tried to find help. Mm-hmm. Nothing could, no one could help her. Mm-hmm. So what's she going to do? Live with mm-hmm. this forever? Mm-hmm. It's so or sp- until he kills her. Exactly. Like, it's me or you. I don't know. That's. I found it very interesting that part where I read at the beginning that I found at the in the Duke Law School where it mm-hmm. was, you know, you read off this whole scenario and you're like, no, of course they're justified in killing their captor and you know if this were Nazi Germany or the Korean War or Vietnam of course and then when you're like well that was her husband and they're married and they live in Alabama then you're gonna be like well wait no she murdered no 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 you can't just because two people are married they can someone can still rape the other person. Yes. That is still... Marital like rape 100% exa- exists. That's a big exists. misconception that yes. it's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't fucking matter. You can still rape someone yes. if you're married. That doesn't give you a pass. I'm not and yours you, to use. Oh, it's... Mm. 
And I can only imagine what it was like in 81. Right. I could only hope that wouldn't have happened now. I don't know. It still happens. Oh, I know. Which is terrifying. So we just came off of Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So I thought I'd bring us on down to some more doom and gloom. That is doom and gloom. But we'll post the numbers for the domestic violence yeah, hotline. Yeah, we'll, and I'll link that up in the um, show notes. It's, I cannot imagine what it's like to live like that. Thank God I've never been in a relationship like that or any situation like that. And I and I, and I hate when people are like, I would leave. never. You don't. You know. better hope nobody ever puts their hand. You don't know. Because when you love someone, yeah. you make excuses for oh, We've all dated somebody who has been a fucking asshole to everybody else that you, you know, everybody else can see that and you make excuses where you're like, well, they were just mad. You don't know them like I do. It, it was just an off day. And I've heard that from people. Sure. You don't know them like I do. Yes. Oh, Why don't you just leave? You should have just left. Well, it's not that it's easy. It's so complicated. It really is. Yeah. And, and when you have something like... These people, and I hate to even use the word syndrome because it sounds like it's medical and Mm -hmm. it's not, but it is. Does that make sense? Kind of like a PTSD. Psychological. But it's like when when you are constantly, and I hate to even, the way I, I guess I parallel it is, Children who are in foster care, Mm -hmm. when they have that attachment reaction disorder, where, and that's heartbreaking, it makes me tear up even talking about it, when all they've ever known is, you know, detachment, it's hard for them Mm -hmm. to accept love or physical touch or a hug from somebody because it's foreign to them, which... Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like no, when all women know is like, if you leave, I'm going to kill you. If you leave, I'm going to beat you. If you leave me when I see the kids, I'm going to kill the kids. If you, you know, it's like, it's ingrained in them that like, I'm stuck. It's beyond a, oh, just get out. I can't leave. get out. It, there's more, there's more balls in the air than just me packing and spinning on bag. It's easy to say Yeah, it's. And going to my sister's house. There's too many moving parts. Yeah, there really is. It's just heartbreaking. I hate, I, I just hate the whole thing. <sighs> and it's it's absolutely asinine that it's still so difficult for our judicial system to right. it really protect is. women and children for that. Oh, you yeah. Know. Yeah, definitely. Anyways, awful. Oh. Sorry. No. It's- next, week, next week we're in Georgia and I, I won't. I started to say I won't talk about anything bad, but um, I absolutely this is will. A true crime I'm podcast. So I'm so sorry. To I forgot where I was. <laughs> well, okay. I have good news. Okay, good. Please. We have a new patron. Yay! <laughs> you know, you know the script Love by now. A patron Laura W Laura. from Tennessee. She just joined today. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura. More good news. We got a lot of nice reviews in this past week. I was surprised. That's like, hurtful. This many people listen to us at the end. No, no, no. I'm like, <laughs> oh, all the way to the end. They're, they're listening at the end and they're like, oh, I hope I'm this. I'm like, that's so nice. And one person was like, 
I listen in Spotify, but I know the Apple review will help you. <laughs> well, well we is, love it. That is so sweet. We don't care if you cross swords with Apple. <laughs> we do not care. I'm like, so Apple algorithm is weird. We don't understand it. No. But it's not for our ego. Well, maybe it's a little bit for our ego. I mean, I'm not going to say I don't like hearing nice things. We love it. We also got a lot of nice emails recently. Perf. So a lot regarding <laughs> the Mexican mafia. Oh, dun, dun, boy. Dun. Okay. Okay. So last week, the Jameson family in Oklahoma, we were chatting about the Mexican mafia because that might have been one thing that happened to them, yada, yada. Uh Well, one of our listeners DM'd us and her father was a drug runner for them. The fuck? In California. Yes. OMG. I'm keeping them anonymous for this, of course. But I'm like, holy crap. Please don't have any Mexican mafia come after us. No. Well, okay. So after this, I'm like, okay, I'll read up more about the Mexican mafia and I'll just give you a few quick things I found out. So do you, did you know it's a U.S. criminal organization despite its name? That it's doesn't not, fucking surprise me. It's not from Mexico. It's U.S. Yeah. We're dirty dogs. Well, here's the that. thing that gets confusing. The cartels confuse with the mafia a lot. And we got a lot of emails about cartel stuff. But cartel and, the cartel and mafia are, are totally two, different. Yeah, they're two separate things. Says the Italian co-host. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking I'm about? I'm like, don't bring that, that to Uncle Gino. He would absolutely. Uncle Gino about this. <laughs> so the U.S. government actually considers the Mexican mafia to be more dangerous than the cartel, at least in America. Law enforcement officials report that the Mexican mafia is the deadliest and most powerful gang within the California prison system. The Mexican Mafia is a controlling organization for almost every Hispanic gang in Southern California and some gangs located in Central and Northern California. So a lot in California. But government officials state that there are currently 400 to 500 official members of the Mexican Mafia with numerous associates within the prison and an estimate of more than 50,000 foot soldiers who carry out illegal activities on the streets in hoping becoming members so it's like a club of yeah, people, people that do mean stuff to be, it's yeah. so silly to me like a lot of gangs they have rules to follow and carry out there's a ton of info on them i went down rebels but one thing that stuck out stuck out one thing that stuck out to me was that one of their main rules is that they must never harm children another rule is that a member may not be a sex offender child killer child molester or a rapist and failure to abide by any of their rules results in punishment and sometimes death. There's a whole voting system as to what kind of punishment they get. In comparing this to the Jameson family, the Mexican mafia, if they are abiding abiding by the rules, they would not kill six-year-old Madison. Well, it reminds me of a, of a case that I read about. We, we've never covered it. It was out of California. And um, this woman was a bartender or some shit. She dated like uh, somebody in the Hells Angels motorcycles, mm-hmm. like in the 80s or whatnot. Well, she went into witness protection because she had testified against somebody in the Hells Angels. So they had moved her and her two children to like Oregon or Washington mm-hmm. State or some shit. This is very vague. I'm giving you a three by five. Anyways, somebody killed them. And so who do they go to? Instantly to the Hells Angels, Mm. who adamantly denied and even went to court 
and showed up at court and because they were like, we don't kill kids. We will kill someone who kills a kid. Like, we may be some fucked up people and do some really crazy, terrible, awful shit that will send us straight to hell without passing go, but we don't touch babies. And it just like, you know, these people are fucked up. I wouldn't mess with them, but at least they have a little bit, not to defend the cartel, mafia, Hells Angels, or any bad organization, but you see what I'm saying? Like, they're not, they're fucked up, but they're not, they're not going to hurt no babies. Exactly. And I, I was like, okay, but are they in Oklahoma? Because I hear all this stuff about I mean, California. I feel like, well, like they're everywhere, no? Right. No, I read an article stating there were violent gangs active in Northwest Oklahoma, including the Mexican Mafia, Chicago-based Latin Kings, and the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang. So Panola is Eastern Oklahoma, but it's possible they're all over. Also, the United Aryan Brotherhood is based in Oklahoma. What? Yeah. So I tried briefly searching for their rules because the Mexican mafia, it's like laid out one, two, three, four, all the rules. You can get a, pl- a plaque, all the everything. But the, it's like a coat of arms? It is. No, but the Aryan Brotherhood, you cannot, I could not just find these are your rules. So I don't know if killing children is something they're allowed to do or not. And honestly, I was Googling a lot and it was kind of starting to make me paranoid about what I was searching. So I just kind of like freaked out and stopped. But I'm just saying, you can find it on the wiki page. The Mexican Mafia says no killing kids. The Aryan Brotherhood doesn't say any rules. So I don't know. No one come for me. I don't know your rules. Mm-mm. I'm scared of everyone. Equally. <laughs> The FBI's already hacked into my computer. Oh, so here's let's transition. So another random email we got was from Wilma, and she gave us a not so fun fact: West Memphis, Arkansas, is on the 35th parallel. No, we don't love it. Were you born in West Memphis, mm-hmm. Crittenden County? You were born on yes. the 30 freaking fifth parallel. Explains why my love life is in shambles constantly. Um, why I have terrible luck. No. And why all of our flights got fucked up. <laughs> you travel with me. Not Frontier. It's a roll of the dice, ladies. Frontier is linked <laughs> to this. No, 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 no. So we also got a super kind email from Tammy from North Dakota before this. And she didn't even know. I hope you enjoyed this. Well, not enjoyed, but you know what I mean. I'm sorry. I don't it know. It entertained you? Inter- I hope. Question mark? I don't know. Sherry H. also sent us several Massachusetts, 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 no, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, case ideas. Perfect. I'm going to write them all down because we could always use more suggestions, but we love all the, all the emails, reviews, suggestions. Keep them coming. Keep Keep them them coming. coming. Y'all are the VIP MVPs. That's exactly right. Next week, Georgia. Georgia. Yes. I don't know what I'm doing yet. I have no one clue. Not. I have no clue. All right. Stay tuned. You'll be as shocked as we are. Bye. (laughs) Bye.